it's good to be back at CLC. My wife Josie is here with me as well, if you can wave at everybody. Uh, we've had a full weekend this weekend. We went to the A's game on the 4th of July, and we stayed for every single inning. It went uh, 12 innings, and so we got plenty of sun uh, at the A's game. Then yesterday we went to the Alameda County State Fair, and uh, you know, we, we kind of joke that we don't really get summer weather in Richmond, uh, but at the Alameda County State Fair, we got a, a good dose of summer weather yesterday. Uh, so we've had a good weekend. Just wanted to give you just a little family update. Uh, we now have a, a 15-year-old uh, who is living with us. His name is Pablo, and he's been living with us for about uh, seven weeks or so now. Uh, his parents are just going through some personal challenges, and so we are just kind of providing uh, a safe place for him to stay and so uh, we look at him like our own. Uh, our hope is still that he'll get reunited with his folks, uh, but you can be praying for them. Uh, actually, this morning, his parents came to visit Living Hope Neighborhood Church, and Pablo was going to kind of serve as their translator during the service today. Uh, so they're coming to visit and just spend some time with him. Uh, but please be praying for his family and pray for us. Uh, we're, we're new parents, so to speak. Uh, we've worked with a lot of teenagers, but this is the first time we've had a teenager living with us. Uh, so we're navigating new waters, but we're enjoying the adventure, and he's brought a lot of joy uh, into our home. And he'll be helping translate at the eye screening as well, uh, so you'll get to meet him and see him. Uh, with that being said, uh, uh, I love this idea of the prayer card for the eye screening, and I just want to uh, second that or affirm it or highlight it again. I think this is a great idea, and we have started uh, just amongst our leadership team at the church, but we're going to include these bulletin inserts inserts at our church starting next Sunday as well. I just can't emphasize enough the importance of prayer uh, for the eye screening. We just prayed upstairs a little bit this morning, and uh, I, I shared at the training last week that every summer there's something that we're not sure quite how it's going to work itself out until like the morning of the eye screening. And, and this year it seems like there's a handful of those things. Uh, and so it's a good reminder that this is, this is bigger than us. This is the Lord's thing. And no matter how many times we've done it before, we're completely dependent upon Him. So whether you're able to come and serve or whether you're praying from a distance... We covet your prayers, and we really want to saturate the eye screening all four days in prayer. And I think this also comes at a kind of a strategic time in the life of our church. We uh, have been reading through this summer a book called Neighborhood Mapping. Uh, just kind of a small group of us, but we've been praying and taking some intentional steps to really learn our neighborhood, to learn our city. And we're asking God to really break our hearts for our neighborhood and city. And we're asking him to give us eyes to see and new direction as to how we can, uh, in culturally relevant ways, impact our neighborhood with the gospel. So the eye screening kind of fits into what I believe God has begun to birth in our church. So we're excited. So we're excited for you to join us. And if you can't join us, we need everyone to be praying. Amen. Uh, if you have your uh, Bible this morning, uh, why don't we open to Titus chapter two together? I want to read verses 11 through 14. I believe they'll be up on the screen as well. It 
going to read 11 through 14, and then I'm just going to pause and pray for our time in the Word together this morning. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together. Father, I just, we just give you thanks for allowing us to gather here today. And we're excited. We, we come with expectant hearts today, uh, not because I'm up here speaking, Lord, but because your word is open and we trust that your Holy Spirit is going to take your living word and connect them with our hearts today. Uh, so, God, I, I just pray that we would not be distracted in any way today, that there would be nothing uh, today that would rival for our attention or our affections today, but that Jesus Christ would be seen clearly and that we would stand in awe of him and that you would truly affect and infect our hearts today with this message. So, Lord, we we know that you are omnipresent, Lord, but we invite you in a tangible way to be present today in this place and in this service. Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me. And in in everything today, I pray that Jesus would be exalted. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into verses 11 through 14, I want to just take a little bit uh, at the context of Titus. I want to look at it and just kind of see how chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 fits within the broader framework of the book. So, The book of Titus is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his co-laborers in the gospel named Titus. Uh, Titus was a Gentile Christian, and it's believed that somewhere after Paul's first imprisonment, which you can read about in Acts chapter 28, and his second imprisonment, somewhere in between there, he wrote this letter to his beloved co-worker, his son in the faith, Titus. And Paul had labored on the island of Crete. He had planted the gospel there. They had seen churches grow on the island. And so now he was writing these words to encourage Titus, who was maintaining the work on the island of Crete. Now, the island of Crete, just briefly, it's an island that's just southeast of the nation of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The island of Crete at that time during the New Testament time had a sizable Jewish population. There were a lot of farmers and fruit growers on the island. Uh, Not only that, but Crete was an interesting place with an interesting reputation. Uh, The island of Crete was kind of proverbial during that time for immorality. And in fact, in Paul, in chapter 1, verse 12... He said that even some of your own poets, the Cretan poets, had said that Cretan are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
that was kind of their reputation. In addition to that, what, one of the issues in the book of Titus is that there were false teachers who were creeping into the churches. Uh, these were Jewish Christians, but these were those of the circumcision party. So they were taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were saying it's not faith in Christ alone that saves someone, but it's faith plus circumcision. And the interesting thing about these false teachers is that they were, they were preaching legalism, but they were living licentiously. In other words, they were preaching the law and they were preaching these different rules that people needed to follow, but they were living lawlessly. And so there was this disconnect, and Paul refers to them as empty talkers. And so one of the main themes of the book of Titus is that there is a connection between our faith and our fruit. That there is a connection always between our belief in the gospel and our transformed behavior through the gospel. And so I want to, before we jump into those four verses for this morning, I want to make some connections uh, from thousands of years ago in Crete to present-day Bay Area. Uh, you know, I think we have some similar challenges on the table, and in some ways the Bay Area, similar to Crete, maybe has this reputation as a context uh, in which kind of sexually anything goes. Uh, we live in a context that I've learned that is about 5% of people attend church. So it's a very unchurch context. It's a very religiously pluralistic context. Uh, our cities have known religious leaders and religious talkers who talk a good game, but who don't really walk it out. And so I want to have the same hope as Paul did when he wrote to the believers in Crete, as I stand before you and as we together look at the word together this morning, I want us to have the same hope and expectancy that the gospel can transform lives, that the gospel can transform and reignite churches, and that the gospel can transform cities and even regions of a nation. Because that was the hope that Paul had as he planted the gospel in Crete and as he wrote words of encouragement to his son in the faith, Titus, that the gospel can transform a place like Crete and the gospel can transform Cretans. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I think it is. In the same way, the gospel can transform us here today and it can transform Oakland and Richmond. Now, I also want us to see how it kind of fits verse 11 through 14 of chapter 2, kind of how we get there in the letter. So if you look in your Bibles, in, in chapter 1, he starts off with just kind of his basic greeting of encouragement to the saints in Crete. He then goes into what are the qualifications for elders. He, he wanted them to be clear that within these young churches that there's certain character traits that your leaders need to have. So the first part of chapter 1 is what does a biblical elder look like? Then he goes into, in the beginning of chapter 2, or actually in the second half of chapter 1, he refutes those false teachers that we talked about. And he seems to point out that this fake or false doctrine leads to fake living. Faulty 
doctrine leads to empty living. So he refutes the false teachers. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he kind of goes through this bullet point list of what it means to live in a godly way within their cultural context. And so he talks to older women and he talks to younger women and he says, Titus, be an example. Let your life reflect your teaching. Then he goes into this kind of employee-employer relationship and he says, serve your employer in such a way that you adorn the gospel. And right after that grocery list of what it means to live a godly life, we come to verse 11 of chapter 2. In verse 11 through 14, what he does is he gives us the reason for this godly living. He gives us the foundation for godly living. He gives us the fuel for what it means. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That first word for is key because it it connects the first part of chapter 2 with this verse. It's almost like we live this way because we live godly, transformed lives for or because the grace of God has appeared. And it's a reference to the first coming of Christ. So the the first thing that Paul wants us to do this morning is he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember the grace of God. He wants us to remember the work of redemption that Christ has secured for us. So he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we can tell from the context of that verse that the grace of God appearing is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus. That Jesus himself was the embodiment of the grace of God. That Jesus himself was the embodiment of undeserved favor towards people. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And it points not merely to his incarnation, not merely to his appearance, but to what he did while he was here. That he came to bring salvation. That to a people that had turned their backs on him, that had sinned against him, that he came to bring grace, that he came to bring salvation. For all of us in this room, we can personalize it, that he came to be our substitute. That our sins deserve separation from him. That our sins deserve death and wrath, but God sent his son for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. And I love just thinking through the story of God throughout scripture. If we could take a second, I know on September 7th, you're going to walk through the Bible, but could we do a little bit just here this morning? Because I love seeing the storyline and then thinking about that the grace of God has appeared. So in Genesis one and two, we know that at the very beginning that God created everything and that everything was very good and that we were created in his image, that we were rightly related to him, that we were rightly related to one another, that we were rightly related to creation. But then Genesis 3 happens. And in Genesis 3, sin enters in. It's the the fall of mankind. And when sin entered in, it messed up everything. And it created a separation, spiritual separation between us and God. 
But the beautiful thing of Genesis chapter 3 and the beautiful thing of the Bible is it, it doesn't end there. Because God, in His grace, He pursues His prodigal people, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3.15, for the first time, it's pointing forward to a Redeemer to come. Someone is coming. It says that through the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15, that someone's coming that's going to crush the head of the enemy. A Redeemer is coming. And then if we continue to walk through the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, we have the call and the covenant of Abraham. And in that call and covenant, God said to Abraham that through your offspring, Abraham, someone is coming. Through your offspring, someone is coming that is going to bless all of the nations of the world. Someone's coming. If you fast forward the tape to the kings, to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have the Davidic covenant. And to David, he says that your throne, David, your dynasty is actually going to be an eternal throne. It's going to go way beyond your years and the legacy of your son. That there is a righteous, eternal king that is coming who is going to sit on the throne. A great king is coming. Fast forward the tape to the prophets. And the prophets prophesied, many of them, that there was a great servant who would suffer on our behalf. And then you get to the Gospels and the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. It's a beautiful thing when you think through the whole story, you get to the Gospels and what a beautiful sight that Jesus comes. The King has come. The suffering servant has come. The grace of God has appeared. But we shouldn't just get excited about the story of redemption in Scripture. We should personalize it. For all of us, if we take a second and reflect, all of us in this room, or many of us in this room, have a moment or a season in our lives when the grace of God appeared in a very personal, transforming way. For all of us in this room, maybe, or many of us, there was a time where we weren't thinking about God. We weren't searching for Him. We were in our sin and we were liking it. For me, I was reflecting back this week to the fall of 1996. I went off, uh, I grew up in a small town in Michigan and I went off to Albion College, a small college in Michigan, with big aspirations and big hopes. And my plan, if I'm honest, is I wanted to play sports and I wanted to talk to girls. Those were my college aspirations. I wasn't going to college to grow spiritually. I wasn't thinking about getting connected to a church. I was thinking about my athletic career and my social life. But all I know is in the fall of 1996 that the grace of God appeared, brought salvation to me. That the very things that I put my identity in, I was finding all of my identity and my purpose and my meaning and my joy, the things that I was bowing down to, namely athletics, God graciously stripped away and he redirected my attention and the grace of God appeared and the gospel changed my life. And so as we think about the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people, 
when did that happen for you and what does that do to your heart when you think about your story? When you think about the time where the light went on and the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to you. But verse 11 also, there's an emphasis there that it says that he brought salvation to all people. Remember, we were told, Abraham was told that through your offspring is a redeemer who's going to bless all nations. This is not to say that every person will come to know Jesus, but rather that salvation is now available to all. And as I've been reflecting on this verse and this promise and this hope that Christ came to bring salvation for all people, I've been hopeful this week for my Muslim neighbors. I've been reminded this month especially that this is a significant month in my Muslim neighbor's life. It's the month of Ramadan. So they are fasting and they are praying fervently this month. And I've been praying for them that as they're fasting and as they're praying, that God would open up their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And I've been finding hope in Titus 2.11 that Christ came to bring salvation to all people, including my next-door neighbors. And I've been reading this week that in the last 25 years, more Muslims have come to Christ than in the previous thousand years. And so God is at work. He has brought salvation for all people, and He is bringing and drawing people to Himself. Not only that, but verse 14 kind of expands on that thought. It says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That Greek word redeem right there, it means to set free by payment of a price. And that language in that verse that says that he redeemed us from lawlessness and he's purified himself, a people for his own possession, that's language similar to the Exodus. If you remember in the Old Testament when God redeemed the Israelites out of slavery, that he purchased their freedom, that they too were set free from slavery by the blood of a lamb. And he purchased, he redeemed them out of slavery And in Exodus 19.5, it says this, You shall be my treasured possession. You see, and there's a parallel between them and us that we are His redeemed people. That God purchased us. That we were enslaved to sin. That we were enslaved to lawlessness. But God, in His grace, redeemed us, purchased us, forgave us, gave us the righteousness of Christ, and brought us to himself, and he says that we are his treasured possession. Sometimes I have trouble believing that. Sometimes my heart has trouble believing that not only he has redeemed me, but I am now his, and I am his treasured possession that God, through Christ, delights in me. I was reminded of a picture that I saw of this at our church on Easter Sunday. We have a brother at our church. He and his wife, uh, some years ago, they had about three or four children who the state intervened and took their children from them for, because of different circumstances. And, and over the years, 
what's happened is by God's grace, they've been able to reunite and relationally connect again with some of their children who were taken away, some of them 20 years ago. And they've been having phone conversations and they've been able to meet up with their kids who they've kind of been estranged from for numerous years. And of late, they knew that they had a 10-year-old daughter and, and they knew that she lived relatively close to Richmond. But they weren't sure if they'd be able to connect with her. And recently they got a phone call from their 21-year-old daughter saying that she'd gotten in touch with her younger sister. And she put them in touch with their 10-year-old daughter and their adopted parents. And they got to meet up. And so on a Saturday, they came to our Saturday service and they just had the first meetup for the first time in their lives since the baby was taken from the hospital, I believe. They got to reconnect with their 10-year-old daughter. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, she came with her biological parents to church. And I've never, I've never seen like a prouder father. Like he, before the service started, it probably delayed the service to be honest. But he came in and he, to every person that was there at our church, he said, I want, you to I want to introduce you to my daughter. This is my daughter. So just throughout the congregation. Like he was so proud of his daughter. And as I've been thinking about that, just the language of this verse... Like, that's the way God feels about us, His redeemed. That we, we were separated from God, that He redeemed us and brought us to Himself, and we are now His. And He says, this is my son, and this is my daughter. That we've been redeemed, and we are now His treasured possession. I heard someone say that if God had a refrigerator, our picture would be on it. That's the idea of this redemption. So the first thing Paul asks us to do is to remember his grace and his work of redemption. And then he encourages us to look, focus on the past, on the cross, what's been done for us. But now look at the hope that the past has secured for us. And so he says, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 13 encourages us with our glorious future that we have because of our past redemption that's been secured. And that word there that says wait, it means to wait with eagerness. In the King James, it's translated looking for. It's that we're eagerly looking for Jesus to come back. We're eagerly looking for the return of Jesus because he's promised that it would happen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. 
This is Jesus talking, so this is a promise. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then in verse 30 it says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The beautiful thing is that we have this promise that He is coming back. And when He comes back, every eye is going to see Him. And we are going to marvel at Him. Our jaws are going to drop. Our eyes are going to get big. We're going to be in awe of Jesus when He comes. I was noticing this banner. Hope. Every eye will see him coming in the clouds of glory and all things will be made new. We need to remind ourselves of that because it's really easy to just get caught up in the here and now. Everything in our world seems to point our direction to the here and now. And I'm not saying that the here and now is is bad or evil, but what it does is it takes our eyes off of our future hope. And so everything, you think about the media, you think about commercials, you think about our social media, our Facebook statuses, our Instagram posts. It's a celebration of the here and now, which isn't bad, but we become kind of lulled into sleep and we lose sight of our future hope. Uh, Last week at the training even, Pastor Aaron from 2 Corinthians 5 reminded us of our future hope that we can long and look forward to. And I was so refreshed and encouraged on that Saturday, but it only took me not even a day to lose sight of that. And so we need to come back to these scriptures. That's what he says in verse 13, that we need to be waiting and even looking for our blessed hope. The appearing of Jesus. The word promises that he's coming back again. That he's coming back again to judge the nations. But that he's also coming back, as the banner says, to make all things new. And because we have been redeemed, because his salvation has come to our life, we don't need to be fearful of that day, but rather we can look forward to it and long for it and anticipate it with joy even. Because we're coming back and we're going to be in his presence for all of eternity. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, you don't have to turn there, but it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So the promise, he's coming back, he's coming back to get us, and when we see him, we're going to be in awe of him, and he's going to make all things new, including us, and we're going to be like him. That should give us joy and hope this morning. I've been working on a a deck project with a, a brother from our church, and he he stayed late the other night. We do it on Monday nights together. And he stayed late and he had dinner with us until about 8.30. And then we were encouraging him to to head home because we knew that his wife and his kids would be looking forward to seeing him. It had been a full day for him. And he was telling us that when he travels home, 
He said, it doesn't matter what time I get home, no matter how late it is, my kids know that I'm coming home and they are excited to see me. He said, whenever I pull up in the driveway, they run outside, he said, and they, they're yelling daddy and they're jumping up and down. And he says, I get excited and I start jumping up and down with them. And it was such a beautiful picture. Those kids are just anticipating dad's coming home. We don't know exactly the time, but we know he's going to pull in the drive. And when, they, when he comes home, it's just this joyous celebration. And that's what I think Paul is alluding to. We don't know the day or the hour, that's what Scripture says, but we do know that he's promised to come back and that we are his. And we'll be able to jump up and down and celebrate when he comes back. Now the last part. Once we've remembered and once we've looked to the future, now it's, well, how does what's been done and what's been secured, how does it affect the here and now? What, what about the present? We've looked at the past and we've looked ahead to the future. So verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So that's pointing out that the gospel is the thing that trains us to live godly lives here. The grace of the gospel not only saves us, it's, it's not only our salvation, but it not only saves, it also trains us. Or the King James, I think, used to say it teaches us. So it trains us to renounce, that's to deny or abandon certain things. The things that we used to kind of revolve our life around ungodliness and worldly passions and rather to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's in, in the here and now, in our everyday, ordinary routines. The gospel is the thing that trains us to let go and put aside and deny ungodliness and worldly passions and rather to live in such a way that glorifies God. It's the gospel that brings that type of transformation. It also is the thing, the gospel is the thing that compels us outwardly to do good works. In verse 14, it says that we are now a redeemed people who are zealous for good works. That is earnestly committed to good works. If you've got your Bible still open to Titus, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. I want us to see a similar connection here. This past, future, present, and how we are transformed through those. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 7, says... So that being justified by his grace. So that word justified means to be made righteous. That we have been made right with God by his grace. By his undeserved favor. So being justified by his grace. That's past again. That's what he's done. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's future hope what he secured for us. And then verse 8 is going to be present. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So there in that passage we see again, remember the past, you're justified by His grace. Look to the future, that your eternal hope has been secured. And then presently, what does that do to our hearts? It makes us devoted or zealous for good works. But I don't want us to miss that connection. That it's the gospel that saves and it's the gospel that trains. That it's the grace of God that has given us new life and it's the grace of God that gives us the fuel to live in newness of life. One author put it this way, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, lives that are zealous for good works, are produced by embracing the grace of God. Spiritual disciplines, scriptural memorization, and accountability structures have their place, but a profound encounter with the grace of the gospel is the only thing that can produce change at the level of our desires. You see, Paul is directing us to something that's greater than behavior modification. He's talking about a power to change our hearts. He's talking about a power to transform our desires. Not just merely modify our behavior. And he's saying that that power is the power of the gospel. Remembering what he's done looking forward to what he's going to do and allowing that to transform our hearts in the present day here and now. Now, as I've been thinking about just kind of application for us and for me, I I was just reminded of my personal makeup in this, that I'm, I'm an achiever. And stay with me for a second. I'm not like going into like personal boast mode. I just want to give you insight into how I sometimes view scriptures and come to it. But I'm an achiever. So when I used to be a student in school, I loved when they gave us the syllabus. I I, I love getting the syllabus because I would look, map it out. Okay, this is what I need to do. I know what I need to do. I've got it mapped out. Here's what I need to do to get an A. Now let me just get at it. Let me just go hard and get that A. I... Also, you know, just as an athlete, as a, as a marathon guy, I just ran my first marathon. As an athlete, I, I like the training regimen. Give me the regimen. Let me see it on paper. Let me see the benchmarks. Let me see the schedule. Give me the goals. And then let me just get after it. Let me work hard to achieve it. And so oftentimes, I would transfer that to when I would come to the Scriptures And so I would come to a passage like this, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. And here's what I would see when I would look at it. I would just kind of read through and then I would zero in. Okay, training, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, and then live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Okay. And then zealous for good works. So I would kind of read the other stuff. Okay, I know that. I know, I know about that already. And then I would just, just give me what I need to do. Give me five things I need to do. Give me three things I need to stop doing and let me do it. 
And for many of us, we approach the Scriptures like that. And for some of us, as soon as that goes out, we just feel this, this overwhelming sense of guilt. Just kind of a persistent guilt comes over us because we realize that we've fallen short this week or just we're overwhelmed even thinking about the week ahead. Or for some of us, we see it and self-righteousness boils up. Oh, just let me work on achieving that this week. I can do that. I can do this. And I think why Paul brings us back to this is because he wants to change our motivation. If we just come and we look at the action verbs for us and say, let me work to achieve this, we might be able to do it for a little while. We might have a good week or a a good three-week stretch, but pretty soon we fall short of even our own expectations and our own goals. It's kind of like a runner setting off for a long run, but without any liquids, without any carbohydrates, without any fuel. It just doesn't last. And so Paul is exhorting us towards godly lives and zealousness for good works, but what he wants us to see first and to marinate on is he wants us to fuel up. He wants us to carb up, so to speak, for this Christian walk. He doesn't want us to burn out and he doesn't want it to be all about us. So he wants us to direct our eyes and our hearts somewhere else. I like the way one pastor put it that every day we need to look outside of ourselves to Christ. Every day we look outside of ourselves to Christ. We remember his grace and his redemption for us that we are his, that we are his treasured possession. But not only that, we look outside of ourselves and we remind ourselves of the hope banner. We look back to the cross, but then we can look to the sky. I I put a picture up there for us. I love this picture. Every day we look outside of ourselves and we remember the cross. That's past tense. That's the finished work that he's done. His gracious work of redemption. And every day we look to the sky as a reminder that he's coming back to get us. We're no longer fearful of death. We're no longer fearful of him coming back because we are now his and he are his hope or he is our hope. So in light of those two things, then we can walk in newness of life in between those two kind of poles, those uh, bookends of the Christian life, so to speak. So I want to encourage us today. Don't read this passage Just go to the personal uh, application verbs and lose sight of the hope and the grace that we've been shown. But rather, take it all in. Allow who he is and what he's done for us to truly marinate in our hearts. And allow that to be the thing that changes us and makes us zealous for good works. And allow that to be the thing that changes us and allow our lives to reflect his godliness. Amen? We've got a big eye screening coming up. And in the midst of it, every day, we need to remember the cross and we need to look to the sky. And then we need to serve others with zeal. Every day of the eye screening, because that is the thing that's going to give us the fuel. And that's the thing that's going to give us the motivation to love people well. Let me pray for us.
Father, I just pray that we would just pause and just reflect on even what what has been or what is our motivation for godly living. What what has been or what is our motivation for good works. And God, if it's been just religious achievement or performance, God, I pray that you would free us from that treadmill that we've been running on. And Lord, I I do pray that the, the things we've been reminded of today through Titus, the past finished work, the future secured hope, God, that, Lord, please change our hearts with that. Lord, we don't just want to quote Paul and read Paul. We want that, that same hope, that, that infectiousness that he had, we want that to be true of our hearts through the power of the gospel today. So, Lord, we pray and ask that you would do a work in us and that that grace and that hope would give us great zeal for your glory and the good of others, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.